This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground, the place to be if you want to master marketing, mindset, and copywriting in your business and hit 10K a month in your business without losing your mind. Learn more at thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 187 as we chat with conversion designer, Melissa Berkheimer, about what copywriters need to know about the design process, how good design makes your copy way more effective, why she only works with seven clients a year, and why she created the Conversion Design School. Welcome, Melissa. Hey, Melissa. Hi, Kira and Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have you here. We, you and I met, I don't know, three or four years ago, maybe, yeah. working on a sales page project for Rick Mulready. And that's when we first met. And it was such a positive experience to work with you on the design side, because I know you know, we'll talk about this today, Today, but oftentimes it feels like copywriters are battling designers and designers are battling copywriters on projects. Um, but when we worked together, it was just really collaborative and we became friends too, which was a great surprise too. So um, a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how we can work together um, more effectively. But before we dig into that, why don't we just start with you and your story? How did you end up as a designer? Yeah. Um, so it's a funny story. So I actually had a business. I was a professional paid singer as a kid when I was eight and I quit when I was 11. And by the time I quit, my hourly rate was more than I charged when I first started my design business. But when I was in high school, I took photojournalism and I was the photo editor of the school newspaper. And so I ended up going to college right down the street from my high school, planning to major in journalism. And then I found out they had a major called graphic journalism. So I switched really quickly. And that meant I took half of my classes in the design department and half in the communication department. And so when I started college, I also got surprisingly pregnant with my now high school senior. So I was juggling a job and a baby and a relationship and a mortgage while studying. But when I graduated, um, I got married and I had my second son. So I ended up just staying at the same job I had while I was in college because they offered part-time and flexible hours before that was really a thing. And then in 2011, I got the itch to be creative. So I started networking at in-person events and got clients based on the fact that I wanted to get paid to be creative while staying home with my kids. And nine months after starting, I quit my job. So that was the start. And after that, I was working with local clients primarily like when they needed me on an hourly basis, just because I didn't really know another way. I don't feel like there were a lot of communities or trainings out there on how to like start a freelance business, how to know what to charge, how to deal with crazy clients, contracts and stuff like that. So in 2013 and even 2012, I started investing in programs like B-School and I took some programs with Amy Porterfield and Erica Learmark and Elizabeth D'Alto. And I just wanted to learn how to transition my business from serving local clients to working with people online because I was just really fascinated with how these you know, influencers were presenting themselves online. 
And so in 2013, which we'll, I think we'll talk about the story here in a second, I got my first sales page gig and then was referred to multiple people that I was, you know, buying courses from. They ended up being my clients. And I switched primarily into doing sales pages. That's been my main offer since about 2013. And then I was a launch manager for another person for a while. And so really the main thing I've, that's the main thing I've been doing for the last um, nine years since I started. It sounds like a lot of your initial clients came from people that you were buying their programs for or from referrals. Is that all like how you got all of those initial clients or were there other things that you were doing? Um, that wasn't actually how I got those clients, but investing in those programs kind of showed me what was possible. And, um, I actually got my first sales page gig in late 2013, um, when a Facebook friend that I had connected with, because I posted on Facebook that Amy Porterfield had liked my Facebook page. I thought that I was really cool. And so I posted that picture and there was a guy who liked that picture that I sent a Facebook friend request to not really thinking anything of it. And then he did a post on Facebook one day, you know, like the ones we all see where it's like, I'm looking for a graphic designer. And so I raised my hand, we connected, there were two available gigs, I didn't get one of them. But that gig was a sales page for Amy Porterfield. So I didn't know what the project was. I just knew that he needed a graphic designer and I raised my hand. So from there, um, I just went on to work with a lot of other people that were in her space. And this was back again in like 2013, 2014. So there weren't a lot of big names out there. I feel like the market's much different now. And so just, it kind of just started from there. Okay. So I want to ask about this a little more deeply because we work with a lot of copywriters who, you know, create an ideal client list. And oftentimes the ideal clients are these, you know, big name personalities in the internet space or in the coaching space, or they may even be like big companies in, you know, tech or SaaS or, you know, whatever the niche is that, that people are working in. And so, um, you know, aside from that first connection, you know, did you have to pitch a lot of these big names? Like what were the other things you were doing to connect? So there was no pitching. Um, one thing that happened was when I bought B-School, um, that May 2013, so this was six months before I got the first sales page gig, I went to an in-person mastermind and James Wedmore was there. And I didn't go there with the intention of like getting him as a client at all. I wanted to learn YouTube ranking strategies from him. So he was there. And then six months later, so this was January 2014. So maybe like eight months later, I was on a hot seat call for a group coaching program that he had. It was a monthly membership. And I was really destined to get the hot seat because I had a question. And my question was, so I'm working with these local clients. They're nice. They pay me on time. The work is is fine. You know, I'm making enough to, you know, sustain our house. My husband, you know, works full time and he's always had a great job. But now I'm doing this sales page thing, which I didn't even know was a service. Um, what should I do? And so his response was, are you really, I would love to hire you. So of course he vouched for me with the person that I had connected with because it wasn't Amy that I was working directly with. It was someone who was, you know, behind the scenes of her business at the time. And then I worked with James, did a couple sales pages for him, did a lot of other things for him. And he referred me to pretty much everyone at that time who was in his Rolodex. 
So yeah, just to draw the lines really clearly for myself, it, uh, again, it kind of sounds to me like the first connections happened when you started buying people's programs and, and then it just kind of grew because you got in the room where these people were that you wanted to be hanging out with. Is that right? Yeah. And I think the other thing that I did differently that I didn't know was even a thing was that I just had a really good process for designing sales pages or really just designing anything because that's how I'm wired. But I really didn't understand that that was a talent. So just kind of by doing a good job, listening to what they had to say, not acting like I knew everything and just doing what I did when I said I was going to do it and creating designs, obviously, that would help them get results in their business. You know, at this time, a lot of these people had made a name for themselves, but they were still kind of figuring out their launch strategies. They were, you know, wanting to take their, you know, build their audience. And so they were building landing page after landing page after landing page. And so they would come to me and I would produce something when they needed it done. Cause most of the time they needed a quick turnaround and that just, they, you know, I would get one client and then they would come back to me for multiple sales pages. Oh, well then that client also has this launch manager that launch manager, you know, was working with multiple clients. So they would come back to me for, you know, both of the clients they were serving, if that makes sense. So really it was like relationships and just doing a good job and helping them make money with my designs. Yeah. So clearly you were doing a lot of things, right. Which is what led to your success. And what you mentioned, it was kind of hidden in there is that you not only um, made you befriended launch managers too, because launch managers often have the most connections to multiple clients. And so if you could build that relationship with the launch manager, that could lead to, you know, a handful of projects. Um, and I know I, I've seen you do that and you've done it really well. I think it's something that we overlook. We just focus on the dream client, but we don't think about, well, who is working with that dream client that might actually have more control over the hiring process anyway. Yeah. And for me, I also build relationships with copywriters. Like I have so many copywriters that I could call my friend that you wouldn't believe it. Cause I think that they're just really smart and we both are serving the same people. So, and I'm not going into it with like, you know, a secret hidden intention of getting their clients. I'm going into it saying, okay, this is what happened for this project. What launch strategies are working right now for you? Like it's kind of just being in the know of what's happening. And that has really helped as well. Yeah. And I know that that's part of what we would chat about too, just kind of casually once we met each other, it was kind of like, Hey, what, what sales pages are you working on right now? Like, are you looking for more sales pages? And you and I would just share leads too, just because we are, we were serving the same client. So for copywriters, it is really helpful to figure out like what designers are you working with, whether it's sales page designers or website designers or another type of designer too. And building that relationship. I would like to just talk about something that popped into my head, just kind of how this conversation has kicked off uh, around pay to play. I feel like this has popped up into a couple conversations I've had recently where I feel like there's this negative uh, stigma attached to the concept of pay to play and um, investing to be in the room. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, for both of you, Melissa and Rob, like how you view pay to play and um, in the businesses that we run as freelancers, like where does that show up and even why some people are so against it? Um, honestly, I think that people might be against it because they're just 
there's a fear of the unknown and not knowing what it will do for you. And I, again, did not invest in the programs I invested in back in 2013 because I wanted to work with those people. I wanted to learn from them. I wanted to do what they were doing. And, you know, that, you know, if I look at like the most pivotal, pivotal years of my business, it were, it was when I was investing and showing up and just, being a part of the community, but I look at it much differently now. You know, I've recently made one of those big investments that everyone's afraid to make. And I've made, you know, I've invested more in 2019 than I have probably throughout the whole duration of my business. And if I look at like the years where like I've seen the most momentum, it's where I've invested the most, you know, I would say I've also paid not financially, but like with my time, just by serving people, getting on connection calls, And just like helping them map out their launch because that comes very naturally to me. But I believe that pay to play is a definite way to go from here on out when you want to show up in the room, even if it's not like a big mastermind. Like I just invested to go to TCC IRL and it's one of the best events I was ever at, you know. That's nice of you to say that. I mean, for me, uh, because you asked Kara, um, I mean, I can remember the first time that I made that big investment in my business, not just buying a like a small course or something, but in joining a mastermind. And I remember having that page open for three days while I was just kind of mulling it over and thinking, should I pull the trigger on this? This is so much money. You know, I, I don't know what I'm really going to get out of it. And so there was definitely that, that fear side that you're talking about, Melissa, that, you know, you don't realize... Um, what may happen. And quite frankly, there are some programs out there that aren't worth the money that you pay to be in them. You know, I've heard people come out of masterminds that they didn't feel supported or they didn't feel like it was worth the money. And so, um, but I think if you're, if you're smart in choosing the program, uh, making sure that, you know, you're not just buying uh, training, but that you're getting mentoring, you're getting support, you're getting, you know, one-on-one time with the person who's running it, I think that you can make really smart investments. And I hate the term pay to play. Like I, it, I don't think it encapsulates what you're really doing because you don't pay money and then, you know, you're expecting to be on their stage or to be, you know, the, the focus of their business. You are investing in your business and they usually um, will, you know, take an interest in you, help you uh, use their resources to help you, you know, if you've chosen well, if you've gotten into the right space. And of course, we've told this story dozens of times, but if I hadn't hit that button and and gotten into that first mastermind, Kira and I would, never would have met and the Copywriter Club wouldn't exist. There would be no TCC IRL or any of the other things that we've done. So I'm a, I'm a huge believer. I don't know, Rob. I think we would have met somehow else. I think we would have bumped you, into each other at an airport. <laughs> I do. I do. But I get, I get the message. Um, Okay. So you, Melissa, you mentioned the market has changed and yeah, like the market has dramatically changed since 2013 and continues to change today. Uh, So I'm just wondering, you know, beyond investing in these programs, learning, showing up at events and, and what I love about what you've done too, is you know, you not only show up in the right room, but you're speaking up and you're getting yourself into a hot seat where you can be the person everyone is listening to and looking at so that someone can hire you to write a sales page because you're talking about designing sales pages. Um, So I'm just wondering if you were starting over today as a freelancer, you know, maybe speaking to designers and copywriters, um, what would you do to get that traction? Maybe what would you do differently based on today's marketplace? Oh, based on today's marketplace, I would 
one, like just invest in building connections. I can't tell you how many coffee chats, uh, virtual coffee chats I'm having this month with people that I met at TCC IRL exchanging, you know, Instagram voicemails with, and just becoming actual friends with other people who are in the same field as you. Um, You know, when you have potential clients or you're working with someone and there's like a weird situation or an uncomfortable situation, or maybe you're getting scope creep, learning from someone who's been there, done that is, is going to be like a big, it's going to just change the way that you do things and help you get where you want to go much faster. And like, don't ever stop that. I would say just building relationships and showing up and finding mentors who believe in you, who don't just, you know, create a seven step formula and then just like leave you high and dry. Just like figure out what you really need in your business. Um, For example, I can share this, like it's kind of an embarrassing story, but I went to an event in October um, that was hosted by someone named Brandon Lucero. And I used to um, manage, uh, launches for a course he sold called local video Academy back in like 2014, 2015. And I went to his event in October and I was destined to get a hot seat and I got my hot seat, but I'm a planner and I felt like really unprepared. And so we did the hot seat and I left the stage feeling really silly because like, we didn't really get to complete like you know, what the outcome was for that. And so one of the speakers was there and I introduced myself. Um, one of my friends is a coach in her program and she's like, oh yeah, I know you. I saw you on the live stream. And so I found, talked to my friend Jordan, who was at TCCIRL the next day. And she was like, yeah, I saw your hot seat on Facebook live. And I spent so much time focused on being embarrassed and feeling ashamed that like, you know, I didn't have my ish together, but like, I realized really quickly, that's like not a good thought to have. And if I want to step into the person that I'm going to be and sell this program that I've, you know, people have been asking me for, for years, then I can't think like that. Does that make sense? Definitely makes sense. Yeah. I, I want to change the subject just a little bit. Maybe we can come back to mindset um, a little bit later, but I, I want to talk about why you decided to focus on sales pages exclusively. Because again, it seems like the design world is wide open. There's so much potential for work. Why did you choose to go all in on that? Um, I chose to go all in on that because in 2014, that's where I was getting the most referrals. And those were the projects that were just showing up for me consistently. And I became really good at, you know, managing the process, making sure that the design matched the copy, making sure that like, you know, the design not only just looks good, but it uses, you know, serves well on the internet and it matches the entire funnel. And, you know, I've worked on a couple of website projects over the years and not that I don't like to offer websites because I do for like really special clients, but sales pages just come very easily to me. And I like that because I found that, you know, again, a few years ago, people were more willing to invest in their sales pages than they were even a website project because that was directly tied to the sale. And that doesn't mean to say that a website isn't important, but when someone is, you know, kind of figuring out who they are, what offers are going to sell, what strategies are going to be the most effective, they're investing in projects like sales page copy and, you know, launch managers and Facebook ads. So that was just kind of, I just decided in 2016 to actually make a sales page for my sales page service because that was what people kept coming to me for the most. And this is probably the the biggest question that we hear about niching. Do you feel like that cost you business or did it actually add to your to your business, help you grow? 
I mean, I'm sure it could have costed me business because people will come to me and they'll say like, I want a logo or I want this and I'm, I can just refer them to another designer. But honestly, the sales page service still like lives today because it's the easiest one to sell. It's not really even a sale for me. It's just more talking about the project and if it's a good fit, it's the most profitable. It's the easiest thing for me to do. And I am someone who likes to stick with what's working. And when I look at, you know, other things that I have done in, you know, the last few years to like kind of, you know, dip my toe into, you know, launching my own products and services, sales pages still are like at the top of, you know, what people come to me for, where I feel like I shine and how I can make the most impact in the world of design when most people don't even know what a sales page is, you know? Yeah, I would. I would love to talk about pricing if you're comfortable sharing. It could be rough numbers, but if I wanted to hire a conversion designer to design a sales page, what are the different packages you offer for that and like rough prices? Yeah. So right now it kind of varies. And I, I've done my pricing over the years. I mean, I started out like, I'll just say like the first sales pages I was doing, I was charging by the hour just because I didn't even know that a sales page service could be a thing I could offer. And then I, I think, you know, about seven months later, I was charging about $900 um, or maybe more or less, depending on the length of the page. Because sometimes people just want like a test they can split test their Facebook ads with. Like, let's say someone visits the sales page, but then they don't actually click the buy button. And pretty steadily from 2014 to 2000, even 19, I would say I charged anywhere from 3,500 to up to like 6,000 for the design alone. And I think one thing that's important to note here is that I personally do not provide development services in my business. I tested out, you know, bringing the copy and the development in-house and I just decided I wanted to focus on the design. However, I'm very involved in the whole process from start to finish. And, you know, that's a lesson I've learned from working on sales pages where they hired a copywriter who was known for sales pages, but then the offer's not clear. So then i designed a whole entire page that I just have to say to the client, you know, look, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but I know what you offer because I know you and I know your business, but this is not clear. And if it's not clear for me, someone who needs to know all the details, it's not going to be clear to your audience. So, um, right now I charge anywhere from 4,000 to 7,000 for the design alone. And I'm very involved in the development process, which is a separate fee. And what I'm actually doing now is I'm booking multiple projects with clients um, because that, you know, it's just, it's a better fit because I am really involved in the business. We can do one sales page because a lot of times I'm not doing the branding too. So we have to spend some time on the aesthetics because they either have a brand or they don't have a brand. So once you kind of figure that out with one client and one offer, it's really simple to do it for another one. So that's kind of how I am structuring those offers now. But again, I'm working on the timeline. I'm working on the creative assets and like the roles in the project before we ever get started so that, you know, the client doesn't really have to worry about that. I finished a sales page yesterday for someone and I've worked with this client before. This was my third page for him. And I, he didn't even see um, you know, 75% of the design before I had went to development with it because we had such a tight timeline. But there, you know, you build that level of trust. And um, that's kind of why I've always limited it to seven clients a year because 90% of my sales page clients come back for more than one. 
Yeah, that's that's a lot of trust there. Yeah. <laughs> that's a great sign. But how are you structuring it so you have multiple projects per client? Is that something that you bring up on the initial sales call? Like, hey, when I work with clients, we work on three sales pages a year and that's how I operate. Um, this is honestly like a new thing in okay. this year. So it's 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 something I've wanted to test for a while. Um, our good friend Sage Polaris kind of turned me on to this. And so it's actually just kind of worked out with one client this year. And then another one I'm working on a proposal for, they want three sales pages. And so like the client I did two sales pages for, like we worked out a two sales page package and now, you know, he's coming to me for another, you know, project we're talking tomorrow. And then, you know, yesterday I also met with someone who wants three sales pages within, you know, between now and July. And so that's kind of how it's worked out and sort of when I, it's kind of weird, but when I make decisions like that and I just show up ready for it, it kind of happens. I can't explain that. Okay. No. And that could work really well for copywriters. Um, and I've, I've heard Sage talk about that too, but if you know that you are working on sales pages for a client who launches multiple programs a year, you can sign a bigger project from the beginning. So I do want to ask you about working copywriters and designers working together in harmony because I I know, like you said, you have a project management background. You are very hands-on, which is why you're great at what you do. I could also see where um, you know designers and copywriters could have conflict if you're coming in and saying like, hey, the offer's not right. The message isn't clear here. And then the copywriter's like, what are you doing? So can you yeah. just talk about from your perspective what works in this relationship? What doesn't work? Um, just giving your side of like how we can make these relationships really effective and maybe even what to avoid. Yeah. I, I think that the first thing is to just really acknowledge that there are always going to be personalities that don't, won't work well together. And I think also just like, and this is what I did with you is just initiating a conversation with the other creatives on the team, you know, and it's also, you know, it, I think it's, you have to just kind of take it as a case by case basis because some clients have a whole entire team that's going to give creative feedback on all assets of the element. Sometimes they have a creative director or a project manager who's driving the project and making sure things happen, but they, they don't have like a creative background or that's like not their duty within the project. So I think the first thing is just really reaching out and having a conversation with the people who are working on the team, even if they're outside of designers, you know, um, I was standing at TCC IRL, this is a funny story. And on one side of me was this same client that I've referred to his copywriter. And on the other side was his Facebook ads manager, like all in the same room, like within the same vicinity of me. So I'm trying to guess, I'm trying to guess who this is and who all these people are. Uh, I can say if you want to, it was Jen Walker and Tony really. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Jim Walker and Tony really. Um, but yeah, so, and I had heard of Tony, but I didn't know him. So like I'm building relationships with them. And so, um, again, initially when you guys are talking, like, let's talk about how they approach the project, how the designer approaches the project. Does the copyright, is the copywriter willing to look at the design and make sure it kind of matches the vision of what they're looking like? Does the client want the copywriter to give feedback? Um, is there, is there like, I also have an editor on my team. I use Renee who you referred me to years ago, Kara. So thank you for that. So I have her come in and, you know, edit the copy before we even get started. Not because the copywriter has done a bad job, but just because this is a high quality offer. I want the project and the end result to be, you know, 
fantastic and I want it to perform and get results for my clients. So really just, I think, looking at how you approach the project, you know, identifying the steps in the entire process and where the copywriter does and doesn't want to be involved. And so the co- the project I mentioned where the copy wasn't clear, a lot of times people will come to me with their copy and it's already done. And if I know the copywriter or I can at least take a look at the copy, I can tell from a directional standpoint, you know, if it's up to par with the type of sales page copy that I would design. There are other designers who maybe don't have as much experience as me, but they're just as good as as design who might be a better fit for something like that. So again, it just really depends on the project because sometimes the copy is done before I even get involved. Um, Like I knew that Jen Walker was the copywriter for the first project I worked on for this client. And I knew that she was speaking at the copywriter club event. So I didn't have to question it whatsoever. You know what I mean? Because I knew that she was under your mentorship. So again, just communicating, asking questions and, you know, bringing up awkward things. Like one time I was doing a sales page and this client was going to be fly fishing over the weekend, you know, in a state with not the state has Wi-Fi, but in a place with it where there was no Wi-Fi. And when we were supposed to do the final review of the developed page, which this is this client wanted to do, I had to have the awkward conversation with the launch manager to say, hey, like, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're behind a couple of days because this, you know, we've had these last minute changes come into the bonuses, or, you know, there's a new section of copy that was added last minute, which, you know, those things always happen. Um, I try to plan for them, but you know, it's, it's just a part of the process. But I had to say, like, I need these the feedback this day, or I will not have this page ready for you by next Tuesday when your webinar is because you've given me changes after the, after, you know, the whole design was already approved. So it worked out to where that client had a layover on their flight on Friday. So they were able to give the review, but a lot of times, like you just don't know who has the creative final say on the team. So it's important to have those conversations, I think. Yeah, I think the ability to communicate with uh, copywriters, designers in particular, uh, you know, I've had projects that have gone way off the rails because, you know, the designer uh, didn't have a lot of direct response or conversion experience. Uh, and, you know, they they designed a sales page like they would design a label on, you know, on a nutritional bottle or whatever. And it, it um, I'm not sure that I handled the conversation well because I, I don't think it got fixed uh, entirely the way that I would have done it. But uh, the designer certainly was not in the place to take any kind of criticism either. So I, those conversations yeah. are critical. And, and I think that this is like something that this needs to stop immediately in this industry. I did a webinar recently and, you know, a girl who I met at the event saw that I posted about it on Instagram and she's a copywriter. She works at an agency and I was chatting with her afterwards and she's like, it was so helpful to learn how you approach things from a design perspective, because I've worked in an agency and the copywriters and the designers were taught to not talk to each other. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I'm extroverted. Like, I'm extroverted, but like, I I don't understand that. Like I would consider Kira one of like my closest copywriter connections in the industry. And we don't talk that often, but when we do, it's, it's a rich conversation about like what's working and what's not and how we can support each other. And I just, you have to have the conversation and don't approach a project. Like, you know, everything. Yes, you are an expert, but you are a participant in this project. I'm going to stop uh, ranting, but no, keep going. I love it. There's got to be egos have to be put aside. And, you know, so many people are fearful of hiring copywriters and designers. And a lot of times it's just because they're not at the level 
to where they're ready to have someone else do it, or they're not ready to tell their story in a certain way. I just hired a copywriter for my bio. And I feel like I feel terrible because when I first, when we first started, I like needed help adding personality to it. Cause I write very like straight to the point. Cause I have a journalism training background and she added personality to it. And through the process, like I had this evolution of realizing who I am just like in the last 30 days. And so I felt like I was being really difficult and I wasn't trying to be difficult. You know, people just want things a certain way. And sometimes they're just having trouble letting go of the control. Be friends, collaborate, work together, and just like talk about your process beforehand. And it just is going to be such a better experience for everyone. Yeah. I, I think you're talking about who has control or feeling like you need control is a big part of that conversation. So yeah. And like one web project I worked, because again, I don't do a lot of websites, but I did one. And you know, this client I had worked with for years and they said, I don't want to be in this involved in this process at all. And that should have been a red flag to me, even though I worked with this person for a really long time. Um, that was not the type of client. <laughs> that was not the best way to approach this project, if that makes sense. So it caused delays and there was just, it was just not the best experience for me. Uh, so yeah. Wait, the client said, I don't want to be a part of this project. They, they didn't want to be involved in it. They wanted me to just handle it. But oh, there's, okay. there's, there's some things that I knew and that I could do, but just a lot of stuff happened behind the scenes that we don't need to get into, but yeah. So just again, paying attention to those things, not only from the creative people who are going to be on the project, but also with the team. And again, I think it's when you're approaching something like this, you can say to someone, Hey, like, what do you think about making this, you know, a few words shorter. This is how I have this designed. And I think that this is going to be a really effective way. But if we could just cut like five words, can you do that for me? You know, just again, I was trained as a journalist. So that's kind of how I operate anyways. But I don't like my goal is to make sure that the design has every single character, like the bolds are bold, the commas are where they're supposed to be. There's no extra words. And that's why I have that editor with, you know, within my process at various steps just for extra assurance that it looks just like the copy was given to me. Okay. So the new worldview is copywriters are more like chocolate and peanut butter and less like the Crips and the Bloods. We got to, we got to get Wow. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Rob, for that. Yes. So I, I want to change topics again, um, Melissa. Uh, this is probably a question I should have asked at the very beginning of the interview. You call yourself a conversion designer. What's the difference between a conversion designer and a regular designer or even a direct response designer? Um, I would say a conversion designer, like the theory of conversion design is that it's based on a goal. And this was kind of, I think, spearheaded by Ollie Gardner at unbounce.com and conversion design, you know, you're focused on the entire customer journey as it relates to, you know, getting a lead or getting a sale or getting someone to take action a to hit your goal. And I think that design in general is, you know, the layout of characters, you know, visually, you know, creating an aesthetic that helps, you know, with your customer and help you build the credibility. And I honestly think the main difference is that, you know, conversion design is based on a result and the other design is based on, you know, how people feel and experience when they're, you know, interacting with your brand. Can you share more of a state of the union on what's currently working in conversion design for sales pages? What's working? What's not working as far as like any major elements we should be thinking about um, that are working today? 
Um, in my personal opinion, one thing I think that people do is they have um, too many testimonials. And that doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to have a bunch of testimonials like in your you know business backend somewhere. But I think that one testimonial that showcases results and like a before and after is better than 25 testimonials talking about how cool you are. I think that there is not enough emphasis put on mobile design when people are designing websites, even outside of the conversion step for this, because I've had so many people come to me when, you know, we're on initial project conversations saying like, you know, we just want to see the mobile design. The designer we hired the last time didn't do a mobile design. So I design custom sales, custom sales pages like mobile when I do a project now. I don't do it for everyone because it really depends on how they're going to be developing it. But just making the mobile design, even making like the iPad level design while you're building the whole thing, I think is really important on the PSD side. Um, I think that just building your credibility and really, you know, at the back end of things, caring about your students and your audience and the results you're going to get for them is really important. Um, I think white space or blank space, as I like to actually call it, is your friend. And so when you uh, when you have more of that, it just gives your, you know, your users and your audience, you know, more time to read. Like even just like with your testimonials, I personally use like a simple format and I stack them on top of each other versus like having tiles where they're, you know, to the left and the right and on top and bottom of each other. Cause I think there's just it's easier and it's more relaxing on your eyes to read. And I think that paying attention to where your audience is clicking, where they're bouncing and understanding your data and that conversions are really just a big test, especially for those who are new to launching or, you know, selling online and that it it's a long-term game versus, you know, fast results now, if that makes sense. Definitely makes sense. So as I'm listening to you talk about this stuff, it sounds like there are a couple of principles that you uh, always are looking at as you're designing a page. So maybe could you walk us through your process, you know, from start to finish as you look at the copy, as you think through what needs to happen, what does that look like so that at the end you get this awesome sales page that's going to deliver a six-figure launch? Yeah. So I think that the first thing I do that's not like most people is I actually take a look at the copy and I ask really specific questions in my onboarding form about how many clients this offer has helped this, you know, my client get, how many students have they had, how much money have they made, what's their goal, you know, with this new offer, what is the timeline? And that really kind of helps me understand their method of launching. And one thing I'm actually going to start doing based on, you know, a couple of projects I've done earlier this year is just getting on an initial call with the client after we've booked the project to really understand their launch strategy. Because I used to be a launch manager and I find that when I can talk that out with the client, it can help avoid like delays in the project if things are changing, you know, kind of last minute, which again, that's always going to happen. But when I'm designing, I always ask if the client has like a brand guideline or like logos or fonts or colors or photos they want on the page, because a lot of times people will brand their offers differently than they will their business. So when I'm actually designing, I'm taking the first few sections of the page and that is what we are coming up with on our first drafts. I'm not doing the whole entire thing because I want the, 
the client and the aesthetic to make sense. I want it to be really clear. And sometimes we have to go through a few rounds. Like I always tell people, like we don't usually get it perfect the first time, but by the second or third round of revisions based on their feedback and like things I want to do. And even from the other creative, you know, people working on the project, we, once we get those first few sections, we can move through the pay, the rest of the page pretty quickly and just kind of nail it. And I think it's because we're doing the initial inquiry. And again, the inquiry is done, done sometimes via live review. Sometimes clients just like to send me loom videos. It's really like up to them, but also like finding out who in the project is giving directional feedback to me is important because I don't want to be 90% through with the design. And then like, there's this person on this person's team who was on vacation and now they've come in and they want to completely change everything. You know what I mean? And that has happened. And of course I do my best to work around it, but the best methodology I found is just like looking at the whole entire picture, understanding the funnel and understanding the strategy. You know, I'm, that doesn't mean I'm writing the copy. I'm just looking at sections to make sure that everything's flowing and works really, really well together. How do you feel about copywriters handing over a wireframe to you? Um, is that something that you encourage and you feel like it's really useful? And if so, like, what do you look for in wireframes? What's helpful for you? I love wireframes because it takes the guesswork out of it for me. And not that I don't like the guesswork or can't do the guesswork, but I think that people, especially copywriters who are trained, um, you know, as conversion copywriters, um, like the samples that I've recently gotten for clients aren't necessarily even in a wireframe, but like they've laid out like, okay, where there should be bullets, where there should be arrows next to text, where, you know, this is a subhead, this is, you know, a headline, this is body copy. So even just having those things ahead of time makes my job much easier and it helps the client, you know, kind of, you know, see what the visual is going to look like from at the copy standpoint, even though they're not necessarily looking for that. There are people who, you know, they're visual processors. And so the people, especially who are visual processors, who can see the wireframe and understand like what it's going to look like, even just, you know, with black and white text and like very basics, it, it just helps the project to me go a lot smoother. And how often do you get a wireframe and you think, and you, you start to rethink it and say, actually, this section I want to do a little bit differently. Does that happen a lot or you usually get a pretty clear idea of what should happen on the page? Most of the time it does. I don't, I don't get it to where I want to change something. It may be like, it may be where, you know, like the client has requested, you know, we've got a photo with text next to it, you know, and we've got like four of those stacked on top of each other. Um, the times where we've had to go through and change, I'll say, can we cut this word so that like all of the paragraphs are like equal amount in characters so that, you know, we don't have one with a hundred characters and then one with 30 because visually that would kind of look a little bit disruptive. So I've had to have conversations with copywriters and clients there, but there's also clients where I could just kind of make that creative decision because they trust me enough and um, it won't make that big of a difference. But for the most part with a copywriter who, who understands conversion copy, I don't have to make a lot of changes. All right. I have a question just because, I, well, this pops up a lot um, where I'm working with a designer and I hand over the copy. The clients approve the copy. We've worked through all the processes. And then the designer's like, basically, this is too long and tries to cut down the copy dramatically. Uh, 
for various reasons. So how how do you suggest handling situations like that? Because I have in, in not working with you, when you and I worked together, we created a very long, very, very, yeah. very long sales, very page. long sales page. And and you were like we were both on board with it. But um with some other designers, it's been really tricky where they have a lot of pushback because they either don't understand the conversion aspect of it or whatever. Um, I know the initial conversation would help. And I've tried to do that with designers. They don't always want to hang out with me and jump on a call with me. So um, I don't know. How would you approach situations like that? Because this has happened repeatedly. I mean, honestly, I think you just have to have, there has to be a conversation, I think, and an understanding from the client perspective, who's bringing everybody on to get everybody on the same page with the overall mission, if that makes sense. And I think it's honestly just a having the conversation with them and not approaching it from the fact of, oh, I'm the designer. I know everything. I you know went to school at this program and graduated 20 years ago. And it doesn't matter that design has changed, you know, and I, you know, I could, I could do the same, like, little bad voice impression for, you know, any type of creative field. And I think that, again, like this has to come initially. And when it does happen, you have to have an honest conversation about it. Like there's really no other way around it. Like what happened when the client, when the client said, or the designer said the copy was too long? Um, the client came back to me and was kind of became this go between almost like the parent. And we were two siblings fighting over copy and design. And so it puts the client in a bad position too, um, where they're, they feel like they have to go between the two parties. So I don't know, maybe it's just more of like just stressing the importance of having those initial conversations with designers and copywriters in the same room, which again, I did try to have, but how important that is. So everyone's on the same page from the beginning. I think, yeah. And I think mainly like the client has to be on board. And before, like, again, before I, again, and I just don't really know any other way because this is just how I do it. No one trained me like this. I wasn't taught this in, in design school, but there, I bring in most of the time, the copywriter, the designer, <laughs> the developer, like the funnel strategist. I'm where I've been working on a pitch with a client for a couple of months and, you know, after multiple conversations, we realized we need someone to come in and review the copy because this person will create their own content, but we need someone to look at the content from, you know, a funnel perspective. And I can do that, but we need someone, you know, to give actual direction. Like I can say, oh, maybe this will work better. Try this, but we need someone who's kind of an expert in that space. So um, I think having a client who's on board with a collaborative project and just realizing that sometimes you were going to have to duke it out with people and just be as nice, but firm as you possibly can. That is unfortunate. It, it, but I think it's it's something that's not going to go away because there's so many people. And that's that's really why I started mentoring designers and I started my podcast because I wanted to give design a voice, but a collaborative voice. And I want it to not, I don't want just the people, you know, the good old boys clubs who, you know, are well-known in advertising. I want to create a new era and a new (laughs) generation of designers and creatives who like understand things better and how things are working now, now not worth versus how they worked 20 years ago. Yeah. As I think about this, I'm curious, you know, what conversion mistakes do you see copywriters making maybe on the projects that are coming your way, maybe other uh, copy that you're seeing elsewhere in the world? You know, what, what are we doing wrong? Um, 
sometimes testimonials are too long. I think that like when I worked with Kira, I'll share the example of. Are you um, just talking to me? Because I have I no. a lot Kira, of long Kira likes no, long no, 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 no. But what, what no, I'm saying is how you true. approach this. No, what I'm what I'm talking about is how you approach this. So if I've got like a section with, you know, five or six stack testimonials with, you know, the photos on the left hand side, the text is on the right. You know, the headline might be bold. You know, we've got the person's name. You know, we've got a standard for that design. If the testimonial is super long, that makes it really awkward. And I was going to talk about what Kira did with um, the golf course. I don't know if you remember this, but actually that golf course is like 10 minutes from my house. Uh, it was a case study for Rick. I don't know if you remember this or not, but there were there were multiple sections where you weren't just like spilling this whole long testimonial that someone maybe gave on a video. You told the story. We told the story in like three or four different sections and made it look like look like a case study versus a design. And I think that when you structure the copy so that it's not just like paragraph, 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 and, you know, add the bullets, add the headline, add the pullout quotes, add the things, you know, that will keep it interesting without it being overwhelming. That is one, you know, that's one mistake I see people making. And um, another one, like this is just a personal preference, but I don't like it when the text and I know this is on the design and the copy side, but like maybe there's two columns of text like right next to each other, but they're really wide. I'm a big fan of the narrow column design. And if you do, if you structure your copy like that, it's just much easier to read. I like to compare that to like newspapers, you know, they were designed because, you know, the thin columns are easy to read. So if you can pull that principle in over to the web, um, I think that that's easier. And I think also too, you know, when you're working on a landing page, I think it's important to introduce the offer and make sure that you have like the navigational direction that you want to go set up. So like, I want to know where the first button is supposed to take me on the page. Is it supposed to take me to a sales video? Is it supposed to take me to a case studies page? And really introducing the offer and repeating what's included in the offer multiple times because people are scanning. They're not, you know, I think that, you know, people say they don't read, people don't read long sales page copy. I think people do read long sales pages because they perform really well over and over again. But I think just repeating the basic elements of exactly what's included in the offer multiple times is just really helpful and sometimes not done when you're working on a page. And, you know, you're going to have the clients who want to buy from you no matter what it is. You know, they, they'll give you their credit card before, you know, they even know what you're offering because they're such a big fan and they just kind of want to be in your world. But for the people who need to understand the details, you know, they say that we need to see something, you know, I don't know what the exact study says, but it needs to be repeated and in front of us multiple times. So people know what they're getting. And that can also help reduce refunds, you know, and questions about like what they're getting. How many times have you bought something? You don't know what it is. You just bought, <laughs> no, really, you bought something because you just all like all the person. time, all the time. What is all this I bought? Um, okay. So I want to find out more about what you're doing today. You've mentioned that you kind of led into the why behind starting conversion school, conversion design school and your podcast. Um, but can you just talk about like what? your business looks like today, where you're spending most of your time, because it has grown beyond your sales page offer into these new areas in your business. Yeah. So today my business looks a lot different 
than it did in the early days. And so my main offer, like we've talked about is sales page design. And I also have a new ish program called conversion design school. And I do run a, a few, like some free and paid mentorship programs for designers, but I'm, I'm finishing those up and shifting into really focusing on conversion design school and sales pages um, as like my two main ways people can work with me. And people have been asking me for years or like how make a sales page course. And I was like, no, because I know that you need to understand more than just the design aspect of a sales page. Like, I don't believe if you have an offer that you haven't sold multiple times that you should even invest in a sales page, especially with me, go get your offer, you know, perfect it, run it again and again, and then invest in the sales page because there's ways to sell things other than the internet. There's the phone, there's, you know, direct messages. And so I was interviewed on a podcast just about a year ago called the Get Back to Design podcast with um, Krista Miller and Corey Woodard. And it ended up, it's a podcast for designers and it ended up being all about conversion design. And so I got the idea then, but really wasn't sure how to like package the offer because I understand like what go, what should go and not go in an offer, but I just really wanted to take it to the next level. And so I hired um, Erica Learmark, who's been on the show before, and I joined her offer program. Now I'm in her marked mastermind. And she really kind of helped me figure out what to offer in the course, how to position it. And I have run that a couple of times. I've got a new methodology that I'll be teaching in it that I've been working on. And also really in my business today, I'm cleaning up so many different things that I've created or that need updating and just making systems for like, and again, I'm good at making systems, but I am taking those systems to the next level. Uh, Right now I'm planning my next launch for conversion design school. And I have someone who's helping me with the project management of that, which is new because I've always been like my own project manager, but I'm in the, like I'm in the visionary space and then I'm in the doing space and there's too much back and forth going on there. So I'm also, you know, bringing on someone to, which I've, you know, been working together for a few weeks and she's helping me with things like podcast show notes and picking out like where, you know, what assets we should put on social media to promote the post. And so my goal is to bring her in and have her completely manage the podcast and my social media. And then, um, you know, I can take my launches to the next level because I'm not doing every little thing. So I'm working more hours than I would like to admit right now. Um, For the most part, I work during school hours because I still take my kids to and from school. Um, Well, not the one who can drive, but the the other one. (laughs) Now, like this week, I stayed up till 4 a.m. just working on something because I wanted it done. And I outsource a lot, but there's just things right now that I need to be the person to do so that I can perfect it and then hand it off and it can work for me on the back end, if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So we're almost out of time, but we want to ask what you see the future of conversion, conversion design uh, as we move forward. Um, yeah, honestly, I think the future is mobile and I think people will still be on their computers, but I think paying attention to how you can interact with your customers, how you can actually achieve the goals and, you know, knowing the data understanding the data so you can then take it and tweak it for the next round. Um, I think that right now there's a popular thing going on with like the script fonts and, you know, uh, rose gold and gold. And I think that those are going to go away really soon. And um, I think that the future is just going to be short and to the point. If you go to Apple's website right now, it features like a few of the products they sell. 
it's very easy. You understand once you get to that web page what they're selling, what they want you to buy. You know what I mean? So I think just like getting to the point and making things more simple is the future, in my personal opinion. All right. Simple. Keep it simple. Okay. So where can our listeners go to find out more about you and your sales page offer and then also your podcast and your school? Yeah. Um, so you can find out about my pod. My podcast is over at the design business show.com. Kira interviewed me for the first episode. It was really, oh my gosh. You. yeah, I, it was, yeah, it, it, I felt like it was a disaster on my side. I, felt, I felt like I didn't, I didn't bring my a game. I'm sorry. I feel like we need to redo it. Listen, this was where we are going to redo it, but this was like two years ago. So I mean, a lot can happen in two years. So that's where you can find my podcast or just anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And um, my website is melissaberkheimer.com. And that's where you can find links to um, the waitlist for conversion design school and my sales page offer. And I also am hanging out more and more on Instagram these days. So I'm at Melissa Berkheimer and I'm working on something new that I'm releasing on my birthday, which is May 6th, which I'm not sure if that's before or after this goes live, but it's basically how to design hero sales page or hero sections for your sales page. That Ooh. So I'm really excited about that. So. Ooh. I like, Um, okay. I want that. I'm getting people that on my birthday. So yeah. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for being part of our community. I do feel like you are connecting copywriters in our community to the design world. And so we can connect these two communities and make them one. Um, And so thank you for being at our event and part of the community and uh, for this interview today. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful. Thanks, Melissa. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Mm-hmm.